0: Jesus is not whom the Bible says he is. Then all of this is meaningless. He is God, he emptied himself of all of the power, omniscient, omnipotence, and just came as a man. He was human. He was so human that the Bible says the Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, a conception requires what? 23 chromosomes from the mama, 23 from the father. That means that Jesus probably had Mary's nose or her eyes maybe his hair. I don't know. There was things about him that were of Mary's. That's how human he was. And that's how human he still is.
1: Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for February 4th, 2018. Today, Brother Omar brings us part three of this message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of God. Why is that important? Because you
0: have a savior that was tempted as you are. You have a savior that was betrayed. You ever been betrayed by somebody? He was betrayed by somebody. You ever been insulted by somebody? He was insulted by somebody. You ever been beaten? He was beaten. You ever been humiliated in public? He was humiliated in public. You ever been embarrassed? He was embarrassed. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You ever lost anybody in your life? He lost people in his life. He's man like you and I, but he's God like your heavenly father.
1: Brother Omar teaches us that Jesus is one person with two natures. He says that Jesus fully understands us as men and women because he took on human form. But Jesus also says that he is I am, which means he is God. Now, he'll be reading from John chapter 8, verse 31. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way.
0: We are going to continue today with the doctrine of God in our series, on our statement of faith. Basically, we're going through what is it that we believe as a church. We as a church have certain beliefs that we hold to. And our statement of faith is pretty general in the sense that we're just basically covering the essentials of the Christian faith. We don't really get into details. You, know, you, you can go to some churches and the statement of faith is like three volumes. Of every single detail of what they believe specifically. You have to hold on to every single specific thing if you can be a member. But, you know, we have a pretty general statement of faith, and we cover what we consider to be the essentials of the Christian faith, meaning that if you do not hold to any of these, you're obviously outside of the Christian faith. You're outside of the fellowship of of God's people. So, the very first thing in our statement of faith is obviously the Scriptures. Everything that we understand about God comes from the Scriptures. Now you will hear some people say, oh, I start with God. Well, the reason that we know there is a God and that we know who He is is because the Bible reveals Him. Otherwise, we would just walk around not knowing anything. So we start off with the Bible, and from there on, we move To the doctrine of God, meaning what is it that the Bible reveals about God, who God is. So last time we talked about God being a trinity and how God is one God. We believe there's one God that exists in three different persons. The doctrine of the trinity is unique to the Christian faith. And it's not a doctrine that is revealed necessarily by a human mind or in nature. It's something that comes to us through divine revelation, which is why... It's a hard doctrine to understand, and just about every analogy that you hear always falls short of describing what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, people have written volumes on the doctrine of the Trinity. Obviously, we're doing a summary of a summary of a summary of what the doctrine of the Trinity is, but close to the doctrine of the Trinity is the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. So, We as Christians believe uniquely that God exists in three persons, and uniquely we believe that Jesus Christ is God. And the reason why we're dedicating a whole sermon is because whenever the doctrine of God is attacked, it almost always begins by attacking Jesus. They say Jesus is either a man or Jesus is some sort of created creature or being or some angel. It's always Jesus who takes the first punch when it comes to to attacking the doctrine of God of the Bible. See, obviously, if Jesus is not God, then there is no Trinity. You can't have one without the other. So today we're gonna dedicate this sermon to talking about Jesus Christ. Now, the word deity, we don't use the word deity like Jesus is some deity that we worship, right? Like, Like in the English language, your weekdays are based on Viking deities, right? Wednesday is Woden's Day, who is the Viking god. Or Thursday is the day of Thor, which is the god of thunder. And Spanish is based on Roman pagan gods, right? But when we say the doctrine of the deity of Christ, we don't mean that Christ is some deity like those. When we say the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ, what we mean is that Jesus Christ, the man who walked in Jerusalem and who did the miracles and he preached, that man is The God of Israel, that man is the God of the Bible, that man is the omnipresent, omnipotent God of the Bible, is Jesus Christ, the man. That's what we mean when we say the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ. It is essential for us to have a biblical understanding of the doctrine of God is to have a proper understanding of who Jesus Christ is and whom he said that he was. So in order to do that, we're going to go to John chapter 8. Verse 31, because there are people that say that Jesus never called himself God. You will hear that for certain people who deny the doctrine of the deity of Christ. They'll say Jesus never called himself God. Jesus never walked around saying to people, hey, guys, I'm God. Come and worship me. But in John chapter 8, verse 31, this is one of my sort of favorite events in the lives of Jesus, because here Jesus is preaching at the temple, And there is a crowd of people that is gathered. Verse 29 says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus is at the temple. He's preaching. There's a crowd of people. And as he's preaching, the Bible says that these Jews believed in him. So then he turns to them in verse 31 and he says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anybody. How is it that you say you will become free? Now understand that these are people who believed in Jesus, but Jesus takes it upon himself to confront them. So the Bible says that they believed in him and Jesus begins to dig in the knife to see if they truly believe in him. So this is going to get confrontational. Okay, If you go back to verse 59, this ends with them taking stones to throw at him. So this is going to escalate from we believe you to we're going to try to kill you. So you're going to see how this begins to escalate. This turns into a mob pretty quickly. So Jesus is standing there by himself preaching, a crowd full of people, and he's telling them, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they said, We are the offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? First of all, that's not true. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were enslaved in Babylon. They were enslaved by the Romans. Okay? So first of all, that's not true. Verse 34, Jesus answered them and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no Place in you. you see the discernment that Jesus had? They believed in him, and Jesus is discerning their hearts, saying, You're trying to kill me. You're saying that you believe in me, but you're trying to kill me. That is an attribute of God alone. So Jesus begins to dig in the knife even more. And then he says to them, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He who sins is a slave to sin. So not only is it not true that they've never been slaves anywhere, they have been physically, but they're also slaved to their own sin. So Jesus is digging in the knife. These are God's people. This is God's chosen race. So verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answer him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You're doing the work that your father did. And they said to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Why would they say that? We be not born of fornication. You see, you and I read the Bible. You and I know that Joseph and Mary were engaged and Mary got pregnant. You and I both the behind the scenes story about that. Nobody else knew that at the time. So years later, rumor goes around about this whole story. So what they're telling him is that they're insulting his mother. So this is moving to personal attacks. They're calling his mom a harlot, basically. So they're saying, what are you talking about your father? We, we, we're, we're not born of fornication. My mama ain't like your mama. That's what they're telling him. So now this is moving into personal attacks, They are insulting him personal. But Jesus, he knows that. He knows what they're saying about him. goes right over his head and he goes into digging the knife even deeper. He says, if God were your father, because they claim God is their father. If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I say? because he cannot bear to hear my word. You are your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason why you not hear them is because you're not of God. Now he's talking to the Jewish people, talking about God's people. He's telling them, you don't hear me because you're not of God. If you were of the Father, you would hear me. So you have to understand, Jesus is living in a period that it was an in-between period. You have the Old Testament, and the Old Covenant, which is coming to an end, and a New Covenant is about to be instituted in the New Testament. So Jesus is in the middle You and I have the benefit of the New Testament. You and I have the benefits that we can look up the book of Romans or the book of Corinthians, and we get the doctrines of God. But they were living in a time when that's not available. And the Old Testament hinted at the truth of Jesus Christ, but it was not explicit. The the only way that you can understand the doctrines of the Christian faith is with the New Testament, and then you go back to the Old Testament, and you can see Jesus in the Old Testament, but if all you have is the Old Testament, right, then you may not necessarily see and understand who Jesus was supposed to be and who Jesus was. So when he says, if you were of the Father, you would love me, what he's saying is that there were those group of Jewish people during that time that even though they did not Necessarily had an understanding of the Messiah or what he was supposed to be, etc. These were people who loved God. They worshiped the God of Israel. They kept the law to the best of their ability. You have men like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, Elizabeth, Joseph. Those men belonged to the Father. Those are the remnant of Israel. But then you had all these other Jews like the Pharisees who kept the law, but they did not love the Father. They did not belong to the Father. Those who belonged to the Father, who were the fathers, those people, God the Father, turned and gave them to Jesus. That's why you see places in the Scripture that he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast them out, because they're of my fathers. See, these are not some group of, of preselected people from, from eternity. These are men who obeyed and loved the God of Israel ignorantly and God in His mercy kept them as a remnant and as Jesus Christ is coming around preaching and declaring Himself to be God their eyes are being opened by God and they're being turned into the Son and whoever all that the Father give me will come to me and I will not cast them out. Matthew 16:13. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's his name, Simon Bar-Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. See, God was opening the eyes of those who were awaiting the consolation of Israel, like Zechariah, they were awaiting the Messiah. And in awaiting the Messiah, they did not have the understanding necessarily, but God was opening their eyes and bringing over to Jesus. But those who did not belong to the Father, not because they were made like that by God, but because of their own heart, They cannot hear Jesus' word. They cannot bear his word. They cannot understand. He will speak to them in their eyes. In fact, the Bible says that God blinded them himself. They were so rebellious as judgment, God closed their eyes so they could not understand. He sealed them in their own judgment. So Jesus is speaking to these people, Pharisees and the Jews, who are claiming they believe in him, but they don't have the faith that is required to come to him. As he's speaking with them, I love it how he continues to emphasize, why is it that you don't believe in me? Why is it that you don't believe in me? And then he tells them, you do not believe in me, it's because you do not belong to God. You're not of God. And then verse 44, the Jews answer him, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> okay, this is insult number two. In their day, you had the Jews who lived in Israel and then you had the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a mixed race. They were Jews who were mixed with Gentiles. Now, the Jews considered them to be an inferior people. They wouldn't mix with them. They wouldn't walk, you know, like if if they had to go to the northern part of Israel, they would go all the way around because they couldn't cut through Samaria. Because that's not, you know, if you think of it in the United States back in the 50s, you had a white water fountain and you had a colored water fountain. If you were white, you went over there. If you were black, you went over there. That's how it was in Israel. They considered the Samaritans to be an inferior, mongrel people because they were mixed. Interestingly, when you're mixed, this is what I find funny, you're 50% of something and you're 50% of the other thing. But for whatever reason, whenever you have these racist ideologies, it's always the lesser race that stains the other race. Because if you're 50% Jew, then you're 50% Jew. But no. They were inferior because they had one drop of Gentile which turns you into an inferior race. So they are calling him a Samaritan. They're insulting him. They're saying, you're like those people. Interestingly, that was not true. And they knew that was not true because Jesus was not a Samaritan. Jesus was from Galilee. They knew where he was from. They knew his mama and they knew his father. But they were insulting him because Jesus, if you remember in John chapter 4, went to Samaria. He spoke with the people in Samaria. He soiled himself with those people. So now they're insulting him by telling him, you're a Samaritan, you have a demon. This is personal attack number two. First is your mama, now you're a Samaritan. So Jesus says, I do not have a demon. He doesn't even bother to refute the fact that he's not a Samaritan. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died and the prophets die? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. You have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Now understand, he's preaching from the pulpit. He's preaching from a church. He's calling people liars and all those things. Picture Jesus, 2018, in a church, preaching from the pulpit. I think our reception of him would be about the same as the Jews of his day. Okay? He goes on to say. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out. Of the temple. The question is, why did they try to stone him? Up until this point, there's a confrontation happening, there's a crowd of people, they're insulting him. But when he says, before Abraham was I am, they started to throw stone at him. The reason being is because I am is the name of God when Moses is going to go down to Israel and God says, go over there and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He's like, I can't go. I can't talk. I can't. I, I mean, I'm not good. OK, I'm going to give you Aaron. All right. Uh, you know, but when I go over there, what am I going to say to these people? They don't like me. They're not going to listen to what I'm going to say. And God says to him, well, tell them I am sent you. They'll know because they know who I am is. Just tell them I am sent. Sent you The name I am is one of the seven names that the Jews had for God. Technically, the name is time-based. I am means that he is, right? There's no past. There's no future. It's just I am. He's just there. That's why he says before Abraham was, I am. That's the name of God. In other words, he's telling them Yahweh is here. So per Levitical law, Any man who makes himself out to be God needs to be stoned. That's capital punishment for blasphemy is, you know, you are to be stoned. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus is declaring himself to be God. And the Jews reacted appropriately. Oh, you're saying you're God, stones, boom, you're dead. Let's move on to the next guy. That's how it was. The Jews' reaction to that statement tells you that they knew what he was saying. Now, you find the same thing in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. Now, my sheep is the people who belong to the Father. They hear my voice, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Amen. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Again, because this already happened. <laughs> Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work, that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So the Jews understood what Jesus was telling them. He's proclaiming himself to be God. You see, the Jews all knew that, yes, there was going to be a guy eventually, was going to come around, that he was going to be the Messiah. What they didn't know is that that man that was going to come around to be the Messiah was God himself. That's what they didn't understand. That's why they could not bear. So Jesus declares himself to be God, which leaves us with three options. If you're a Christian, if you're any human being who looks at the life of Jesus honestly, you have three options when it comes to dealing with Jesus. Jesus declares himself to be God. It's open in the Bible. It says it right there. So either Jesus was a liar who knew that he wasn't God, but went around telling people that he was God, even though he knew he wasn't. Or Jesus was crazy. He was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and actually believed that he was God, even though he wasn't God. Or Jesus was God, and he was honest about who he was. You got those three options. So people will say to you, ah, you know, I believe Jesus was a good teacher. He was a good prophet. He wasn't God. You can't be a good teacher and a good prophet if you're a liar. I don't, you know, how do I know what you're saying is true? Right? Because he proclaimed himself to be God. Or he was crazy, so I don't even know what, you know, how can you be a good teacher or a good prophet? Even if you're crazy, you don't know what you're saying. Or Jesus was a good teacher, was a good prophet, and he was truthful and he was God. And he, he was whom he claimed that he was. So Those are your three options when it comes to Jesus. Or you believe is all a fraud the Bible. In that case, you can't even believe that Jesus even existed to say that he was a good teacher. Those are your three options when it comes to Jesus Christ. You have to deal with him and with his claims those three ways. Now, one of the best examples of people that deny Jesus' divinity, but consider him a good preacher or a good teacher, was Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson was in many ways a genius. In many ways, he was a crackpot. He was a Cuckoo for Cocktail pops himself, but he said he actually took the New Testament and he edited it out. If you look up, if you go to Google, you look up Jefferson Bible, he made his own Bible, Thomas Jefferson. Now the way he did this, and I pulled this, this is from Wikipedia, mind you, but this is what he says. He says, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, that's what the name of his Bible was was completed in 1820 by cutting and pasting with a razor and glue numerous sections of the New Testament as extractions of the doctrine of Jesus. Jefferson's condensed composition is especially notable for its exclusion of all miracles of Jesus and most mentions of the supernatural, including sections of the four Gospels that contain the resurrection and most other miracles and passages that portray Jesus as divine. So you ever heard of the term cut and paste? He literally cut and pasted with glue the Bible and eliminated those sections that had miracles or any supernatural thing. In a letter to John Adams, he says this, and I quote, "In extracting the pure principles which he taught, which should have stripped off the artificial vestments in which we have been muffled by priests who have travestied them in various forms as instruments of riches and power to themselves, there will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which have ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use, by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. The result is an octavo of 46 pages of pure, unsophisticated doctrines. So he reduced the whole Bible into 46 pages. He took off... The entire section of the Apostle Paul, he took off everything else, and it all boiled down to 46 pages. Now, if you think about a man picking and choosing what to believe in the Bible, he literally picked and chose what to believe in the Bible. So Jefferson wrote that Jesus did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the Son of God. He called the writers of the New Testament ignorant, unlettered men who produced superstitions, fanaticism, and fabrications. He called the Apostle Paul the first corrupter of the doctrines of Jesus. He dismissed the concept of the Trinity as mere abacadabra of the mountain backs, calling themselves the priests of Jesus. He believed that the clergy used religion as a mere contrivance to accumulate wealth and power to themselves, and that in every country and in every age, the priests have been hostile to liberty." He wrote to John Adams saying that they will come when the mystical generation of Jesus by the supreme being and his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with a fable of generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. That was Thomas Jefferson. So he literally took the words of the Bible, edited them out, and he created a God that doesn't exist. And a Jesus that was merely a man who taught a set of codes they were really, really nice, but he was never God or he never proclaimed himself to be God. He picked and he chose what to believe. Now, this is an extreme example of a man, but today we all do this. We pick and we choose. And in many places, and even in evangelical churches, we have made up a Jesus of our own, a very nice Jesus. A Jesus that just loves you, but he doesn't expect anything out of you. He doesn't have a law that you should obey, for example. But the Jesus of the Bible is God. And as God, he makes demands. God has demands for us. God makes demands for the world. And primarily that we should repent and believe in him. So Thomas Jefferson is an extreme example of that. But like I said, Jesus is either a man who was a liar or a lunatic if he was God. That's the inescapable reality, which Thomas Jefferson thought that he could get away with, but he couldn't. Not only that, but he was wrong in his prediction that the story of Jesus would be considered a fable when it's not. Today in the world, Jesus believed more than it was in the days of Thomas Jefferson. So Jesus won Thomas Jefferson, zero. So, who is our God, Jesus Christ? Who is He, and how is He God? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the most beautiful introduction to any book that I've ever read. In his commentary, Adam Clark writes this. He says, the character or impression of his hypostasis, or substance, it is supposed that these words expound the former, image expounding brightness, and person or substance glory. He goes on to say, it is a perfect facsimile of the whole. It is a metaphor taken from sealing the die or seal leaving the full impression in every part on the walks into which is applied. Here's what he's saying. In the olden days, when you got a letter from the king, a royal letter, it would come with a seal. So you got a letter that says, go and mow the lawn over there. Well, I don't don't have to do it. What the king says, how do you know? Well, here's the letter from the king, and it has a seal. And what they would do is they would take the wax and they would melt it, and then the, the king would take his ring, or he would take a stamp, and he would stamp it, and then the imprint of the stamp would translate into that seal. So the word here that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature means that when God decided to reveal himself to the world, he took his ring and he imprinted Jesus into the world. He is the imprint, the exact imprint of Jesus, of God. Jesus goes on to say, John chapter 14, verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you for so long you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am me and the Father are one? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. They say him, show us God. And Jesus says, you're looking at him. I am the exact imprint of his being. Um, Colossians 1.15, it says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. When the Bible says He is the firstborn, I'm going to get into this a little bit later. I don't want to spend much time. But firstborn does not mean he was like created first. That is a title of authority. When you're firstborn, it simply means that you have the inheritance. You have the rule of a state in those days. So Jesus Christ, when it says he's firstborn, means that he's preeminent because all things were created for him and through him. So it'd be a contradiction for Paul to say he is the image of the invisible God, but he is a created being. That makes no sense. It's a logical contradiction. Now there are folks who believe that, which I will cover back when, you know, when I get into the sermons when I get to name names. But he is the image of the invisible God. Matthew 1:23, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with Us. His name says it all. He is God with us. I got so many verses I can spend the rest of the day quoting them. So what does it mean that Jesus is God? Here's where the misunderstanding happens. The Bible teaches that Jesus was God, as we just read, but the Bible also teaches that Jesus was man. We see him, for example, getting hungry. We see him getting troubled in his spirit. We see him getting beaten and bleeding. He asked the women of the well, you know, give me water because I'm thirsty. They asked him the hour of the day of judgment. He says, the Son of Man does not know. So how can Jesus be all the things that we say God is? Omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent. But at the same time, the Bible also portrays him as a man. See, Jesus was not Clark Kent, for example. You know, Clark Kent walks around and he looks like a regular dude, but he's Superman. He just puts some glasses. I don't know why in 2018 we're still pretending that it's okay for Superman to put glasses, and nobody knows who he is. I don't understand that. It's it's 2018. Give him an iPhone 10. Just scan his face. It will recognize him. But anyways, Clark Kent looks like a man. He looks like a regular person. But if you go up to him and you punch him in the face... Your hand is going to break. Because even though he is Clark Kent and he looks like a regular dude, he is Superman. He just put some glasses on. Jesus was God. He was God. But if you walked up to Jesus and you punch him in the face, you can break his mouth, you break his teeth, you break his nose. If you hold his head underneath the water, you can drown him. He was a man, fully man. But he was also fully God. So the Bible doesn't contradict itself so these two things need to be looked at. Now, the way that we understand that, that the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that Jesus has two natures. He's man and he's God. This is called hypostatic union. fancy, the word number one is hypostatic union. The same way that God is one, one God, in three persons, is the same way that Jesus... It's one person with two natures. He's 100% man. That is, that he is like you and me, a man, 100%, but he's also 100% God. He's not a mix of God and man. He's not like 50% God and he's 50% man. I don't even know what it would mean to be 50% God. It doesn't make sense. He's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And these two natures that Jesus has exist Together in union, but they're separate, they're not mingled, okay? If you remember, the word hypostasis was the way that the Greek church called the persons of the Trinity. In the Western church, God is one in three persons. In the Eastern church, God is three hypostasis and one usia. Now, the word hypostasis means substance or communication, And Ujah means just like a general substance. Each one of the persons of the Trinity is different, meaning the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, etc. But they're not independent. They're still only one being. And the second person of the Trinity has two natures. The Father does not have two natures. The Father did not incarnate. The Father did not come as a man. The Holy Spirit did not incarnate. The Holy Spirit didn't come as a man. But the Son did incarnate and took on flesh, and came as a man. So he has two natures. Christ, Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus Christ says that he's 100% God, but he's 100% man, like you and me. In fact, after he resurrected and ascended unto heaven, he still kept his human nature. It didn't go away. He took humanity right up onto the Godhead. Now, like I said, there's not a mixture of the two, creating some sort of weird mixture of a nature. He's still 100% God. So when you hear verses in the Bible, for example, that say that Jesus submitted himself to the Father, or the Father is greater than I, Jesus is not saying that in his divinity he is inferior to God. In his divinity, in his deity, he's equal. He's part of the Trinity. But in his humanity, he's inferior and therefore submits himself to God because he's human, but he's God. He has two natures. This is called the mystery of godliness. God took on human flesh. Now, we don't know exactly how that happens or works. We don't know. I have read many things of people trying to explain it, it is a mystery but it's what the Bible teaches. And the confusion lies when you have people who take the humanity of Jesus all the way to the extreme and they take away his divinity. And there are some folks who take away his humanity and just go to the extreme of his divinity and the humanity goes away. No, he's man, but he's God. No, that is important because Jesus Christ atoned for our sins. He atoned for our sins. Only an eternal God in human flesh can offer a perfect sacrifice for our sin. That is that God himself had to come down. Like Olu said, our sin is an infinite debt that had to be paid by an infinite God. But that God had to come and die in human flesh. In Philippians chapter two, this is what makes this whole thing so incredible to me because God if you realize the fact that he did not have to do this, Mm -hmm. that in him taking on human flesh, it doesn't mean that he had to suffer and die. He had to come down and live among us. Now, this is a being that lives in absolute holiness and perfection. And he comes down to this rotten, dirty world to live for 33 years with all of the sinfulness and the violence and the lust and all of the hideousness that we as human beings have brought upon this world. He had to live on this world for 33 years. The pressure, the temptations, day in and day out. And he lived that perfect life. And then at the end of living that perfect life, he dies and he's beaten and he's spat at And all for our sins. So when Jesus becomes a man, he emptied himself of all that glory. When he was walking here on earth, he submitted himself to the Father. When he did miracles, he did miracles by the Holy Spirit. He submitted himself to the Father and he leaves all of his power that he can muster and allows the Holy Spirit to use him. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is why this is important, you see. Jesus is not whom the Bible says he is then all of this is meaningless. He is God, he emptied Himself all of the power, omniscient, omnipotence, and just came as a man. He was human. He was so human that the Bible says that Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, a conception requires what? 23 chromosomes from the mama, 23 from the father. That means that Jesus probably had Mary's nose or her eyes, or maybe His hair, I don't know. There were things about him that were of Mary's. That's how human he was. And that's how human he still is. Why is that important? Because you have a Savior that was tempted as you are. You have a Savior that was betrayed. You ever been betrayed by somebody? He was betrayed by somebody. You ever been insulted by somebody? He was insulted by somebody. You ever been beaten? He was beaten. You ever been humiliated in public? He was humiliated in public. You ever been embarrassed? He was embarrassed. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You ever lost anybody in your life? He lost people in his life. He's man like you and I, but he's God like your heavenly father. So his sacrifice was perfect to atone for our sins. Furthermore, he was a man, but he's still a man today, sitting at the right hand of the father. Revelation 1, Apocalypse 1. One of my favorite verses, verse 4, it says, says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, To His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, and even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. He is our God, but He's also still man. His human nature is still there. So when you are suffering, when you're being tempted now, don't think that he doesn't know what that means. He knows what that means because he was there. He was tempted in every way like us, but without sin. So we have a God and a Savior who was also man, who is man, but he is God. And the hypostatic union was a fancy term that the early church had to come up with because they were struggling with the heresies of their day, which I will cover. Heresies kept coming up attacking the deity of Jesus Christ. So the early church's job was to rise up against it. And the term hypostatic union is a name they gave, like the Trinity. It's the name that they gave to explain something that the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ, as mysterious as that sounds, is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. So I'm going to finish with a quote. This is from Austin Fisher. He says this, When Jesus of Nazareth stepped on the scene, God himself had taken on flesh. This is the relentless affirmation of Scripture. The Creator God, the liberating God, the God of Israel and the universe, the God who will return to judge the living and the dead, is the God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. As Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. As Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. It's not negotiable, it's not up for debate, and if you like it, you can take your ball and go home. God looks like Jesus, not some of the time, not part of the time, not most of the time, but God has always, does always, will always look like Jesus because Jesus is God. This is from Austin Fisher's book, Young, Restless, No Longer Reformed. I recommend if you want some good teaching. It's important for us to know this is because, like I said, His sacrifice or what was required to save us from our sins was an infinite sacrifice that only God himself could offer. And God became man and lived among us to offer that sacrifice for our sins. And now he reigns in heaven. He reigns in heaven. And he is the head of the church, and he has been given all authority on heaven and on earth. And with that authority, he commands us to go into the world and make disciples of every nation. Teaching them all things. This is the this is the second part of the Great Commission that is not emphasized. See, when we hear the Great Commission, we're thinking, go, you know, do some altar calls, get some people saved, and that's it. We fulfill the Great no the the, the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every preacher. This is step one. That's the balcony of the house. Salvation is you have a house called salvation. You getting saved is you walked into the porch, boom. You're, that's, that's the balcony. Now you've got to open the door, you've got to walk into the house, and then you've got to go around the kitchen and all of that. So going into the world and preach the gospel is the first step. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded unto you, that's the second part of the house. And the authority has been given to Jesus over all the nations in the world. And he commands us to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for the revelation you've given us, Lord. We thank you for becoming man, Lord, for coming down and living among us, Lord, and dying for our sins, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that despite all that we've done, you loved us enough, Lord, to make this sacrifice for us, Lord. I pray that you may always remind us of who you are and always remind us of what you did, Lord, because you are the center of our faith, you are, Lord, the author of our faith, Lord, as the Bible says. And we pray that you always, always, always keep that in our minds, tattooed to our hearts, Lord. And we thank you for all what you've done for us. Amen. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash F-O-T-W Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's Word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.